Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is your host, Josh Summers, and I'm very happy to have you here today. Okay, in today's episode, I bring you another installment of my ongoing conversation series with Robert Wright. Bob is a, a journalist, a public intellectual, and author of numerous books, including The Moral Animal, Non-Zero, The Evolution of God, and more recently, Why Buddhism is True. Highly recommend looking at his books, and there's a link for you in the show notes on Why Buddhism is True. So Bob and I have been having this ongoing conversation that was uh, inspired tragically by the passing of our mutual friend Michael Brooks. And in the beginning of this conversation, we, we kind of have a, a remembrance of Michael and Michael's legacy a bit. Um, but Bob is uh, kind of a big macro thinker, and if I were in this series of conversations, I've been trying to help him flesh out his worldview. And if I were to kind of give you a 10,000 foot overview of that, it's that um, the world is increasingly interdependent. The pandemic, financial catastrophes, lots of the climate change, lots of things have pointed out our interdependence to us. And within that increasing interdependence, we're also in the next several years to decades going to be facing global level apocalyptic threats, whether that's climate change, arms races, pandemics of either the natural or man-made variation, uh, economic conflicts, all sorts of conflicts are going to be coming our way. And his argument is that if we don't have uh, the the kind of the cognitive ability as a species to come together and handle these or address these at a global level, We'll, we'll almost surely fail. And part of his thesis is that the main impediment or the main obstacle to achieving a capacity for global governance to handle these global catastrophic threats, uh, the main impediment is our human psychology, specifically the psychology of tribalism that uh, reinforces a perception of us versus them which makes uh, collaborating uh, at the world level or the world stage to address these global crises, it makes that collaboration very difficult. So um, Bob and I share this view that cognitive bias is at the root of this psychology of tribalism. And we both uh, are optimistic in some level that meditation, specifically mindfulness meditation, is a way that individuals can become a little bit more immune to their own perceptual distortions driven by cognitive bias. At least that's kind of our a working hypothesis we have, and we, we get into it in this conversation. And to you, my dear listener, I just want to give you the suggestion that uh, if you are running short on time, uh, let yourself uh, listen to this episode over a few sessions maybe take a few long walks and, and, and sit with it. But do try to get to the material at the end. Um, I'd say the last 20 to 30 minutes, Bob and I get into discussing mindfulness practice, different approaches to mindfulness practice. We get into a little bit of a, maybe even a contested discussion about mindfulness. It gets a little interesting. So, so check out uh, that part of the conversation towards the end. And um, I do want to encourage you to sign up for Bob's wonderful newsletter called the Non-Zero Newsletter which looks at foreign affairs, mindfulness, psychology, 
philosophy and current events in kind of a Bob unique way. So uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a newsletter that I, I very much look forward to receiving in my uh, email inbox, and I recommend it to anyone that is interested in the kinds of things we're talking about. So just a couple more things before I give you today's episode. One is that you'll notice um, it sounds like Bob is hosting me rather than me hosting Bob. And that's because these conversations are originally published through his own podcast called The Right Show. That's his last name, W-R-I-G-H-T, The Right Show. Great podcast to subscribe to. Or um, these conversations are also published through his broader platform called Meaning of Life TV. So I just wanted to mention that in case any of you are new and wondering why it sounds like Um, You're suddenly listening to someone else's podcast, not my own. That's why. Uh, And the other thing I want to mention before I give you this conversation is that we we start out mentioning a meditation book that I co-authored with the late, great Michael Brooks. Um, I have plans to make this book uh, published again, meaning a printed copy available probably in the early part of next year. Um, But right now you can purchase the book through my site as a digital ebook and it's accompanied by five guided meditations that I recorded. So if that's of any interest to you, check it out. It's the link in the, in the show notes to the shop page from joshsummers.net forward slash shop. We'll bring you to the page for um, checkout for the book, the Buddhist playbook that Michael, Michael Brooks and I wrote. Um, I'll say more about that book when I re-release it and as a published uh, as a printed form. Um, but Uh, Just want to let you know about that. And without further ado, I give you the next installment of The Dharma of Bob with Robert Wright. Hi, Josh. Hey, Bob. How are you doing? Better now that we got our tech problems straightened out. Let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright, and I've just endured some tech problems along with you. Uh, but we're recording, and you're Josh Summers. You are a meditation teacher, yoga teacher, other things. Uh, what else are you? What do you like to highlight about yourself? For the purposes of this conversation, I am an anxious citizen looking for guidance. <laughs> okay. We'll see what we can do. Um, yeah. So by way of background, I guess you and I have had a series of conversations uh, which always feel a little self-indulgent to me because they're about my worldview, which you have flatteringly dubbed the Dharma of Bob. Um, and, uh, we're going to continue these conversations, uh, partly out of my desire to get your guidance on how to do a better job of conveying my worldview to people. But, you know, first I wanted to, mention uh michael brooks the late mm-hmm. michael brooks who passed away a little over a year ago i guess right because the, his death uh is what led to this series of conversations he was uh you knew him better than i did uh but we both knew him and uh he was uh you know a a, a prominent uh podcaster journalist uh of it is safe to say a a leftist perspective, uh, but also a follower of the Dharma, uh, you know, a meditator and, um, uh, 
you with know, a comedic twist. With a comedic a twist. He was a very funny guy. Uh, he passed away suddenly without, without warning. And, um, he, as it happened, I had been scheduled to go on his show a week or so after that tragedy and uh, talk about cognitive empathy, which is an important part of of, uh, of my worldview and, and refers to this business of just trying to understand another person's perspective, uh, not to be confused with emotional empathy, which is more like, you know, feeling their pain. Um, but. Anyway, I I, uh, I wouldn't let you say anything you want to say about Michael. I think uh, you know it's it's a good time to say it. I I, I don't know. Um, you you recently went to I think uh, a, a a commemorative service uh, that rough was close to the one year in uh, one year after. It was just death? yeah. It was just it was maybe I think a month or so after the the, the date of his death, which I think it was July twentieth. Okay, thereabouts. Um, and, and the, and the, yeah, the commemorative memorial, uh, that just happened last August was sort of the, the slated to be the anniversary slash memorial for, for him that couldn't really happen during the, the, the depth of the pandemic. Um, but tragically and, and, and kind of weirdly, his father died just days before that memorial this year. Oh. So what the family ended up doing was having a, a dual memorial, which was interesting. Um, and, and so it, it was quite an intense wow. experience. I didn't know that. Yeah. It was, uh, it, it, one of the, the body workers that his father had been seen, uh, spoke to the father's anxiety about the, the upcoming memorial and, and wanting to be able to speak and, Oh, and, and commemorate God. his son well, and it, it seemed like this affected his something in him that 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 uh, led to his sad. demise. Um, but yeah, no, it, but it, but it was also it was celebratory because they were both very. Hearing more about Michael's dad allowed me to even understand Michael more, and and I don't think I would have had that view had the dual memorial not occurred. Huh. Um, his dad was also very comedic, very, uh, had, you know, tremendous passion and, and interest in, in self-authentication and individuation and, and really helping people achieve the most in their life. And, and I think that was a, a big strain of Michael, too. What had his he, father's career been? That's a good question. I think he was he kind of cobbled and struggled a bit with his career, but he was a radio host in in the Northampton uh, really? area of Massachusetts. Yeah, uh, he had interviewed all sorts of folks, including people like Deepak Chopra and various folks. Uh, and he he really seemed to be, in my sense, was he he was it was sort of a life coach slash radio host. And that's what everyone spoke about that his friends that got up to speak always talked about how he encouraged them to, to pursue their best, even, even whilst his own life was kind of crumbling. And that was something that Michael, I knew knowing him personally, he, he struggled with, um, the kind of lack of stability that he had in early in life. And there was a fair amount of poverty, right? That, that Michael that. experienced and food scarcity and, you know, looking at the, the direction that Michael was moving in terms of his politics, I think that that experience of scarcity and, and, and poverty really shaped the vision of what he wanted to bring into the world. Hmm. 
Yeah. Uh, and, and he was what Michael had done was so impressive. I mean, he was very entrepreneurial. He had started the Michael Brooks show. Um, and uh, after kind of co-hosting the, the same Seder thing, I guess, for a long time. Right. right. Uh, and and the show was a huge success and, and had a big following. And uh, and that's hard to do. Um, yeah, no, and I, and I think it was the, I, I mean, I wrote a little, I did a, a podcast episode on Michael for my own podcast at one point, and I was trying to weave together the three, three big sides of Michael that I think gave him his unique ability to connect, uh, his message. And that was, he had a huge broad view of history and politics, but it was infused with both his, his own spiritual practice and, 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 and motivated by the, the kind of the Buddhist attempt to mitigate suffering as much as possible. Um, but he brought a real wacky sense of humor to the table and he could, he was creating these, these mashups, you know, people like the, the right wing Nelson Mandela, for example, you know, these, <laughs> these, these mashups of characters that I think, it, it, it shook up people's consciousness in a way about, about, and it got them to see things differently. And I, and I, I, I've met and, and people have emailed me through the book that we co-wrote, but people what's, have said what's how the name, much. What's the name of the book? It's called the Buddhist playbook. Buddhist it was, it was playbook. A, the Buddhist playbook, right. It was, and which was an attempt to kind of use some of the theory from behavioral economics around decision making to help people develop a more consistent, meditation practice and mm-hmm. then, and, and which in turn could help the decision-making process, uh, beyond the cushion. Um, and, uh, anyway, he, you know, he, he just, he, those three things, the Dharma, his, his, his sense, his macro view of the world. And, um, cause he, I mean, he had a, a, a much better sense of world history than most people I know and not world history, but just international relations too. just, it was very, very deep and trenchant. Um, and he could combine it in this very entertaining way with this witty comedic side that I think was both entertaining and educational. Yeah. He also took ideas very seriously. He was, he was well grounded in, uh, you know, Marxist theory and, and, and various things. Uh, it's, uh, and he was young uh, by was, my yeah, standards, certainly. How, uh, roughly how old was he? 30. Uh, I want to say 37. Jeez. Um, and or, you had, or, or 36 actually, because he would be 30. I, I, I gets a little, I trip it up on the calculation here, but 36, you, 37. You had met him in the context of meditation. Is that right? At a, at a, at a retreat or not? Right. Yep. Like you at the Insight Meditation Center. So you Society. met me at the Insight Meditation Society at a retreat and you Roughly, met him there. Yep. Right. You're my two big Insight Meditation Society friends. But I <laughs> okay. met him a few years before you, and he was 18 at the time. And he hadn't wow. gone to college yet. And and so, and so I really knew him cl- more closely before he became the phenom of Michael Brooks. You know, it, when he mm-hmm. when he got into the majority part, I, like, he, was, he had moved to New York, and, and our working relationship had dissolved at that point. We were just sort of, we were good friends, but we, we hadn't, um, we weren't mm-hmm. as close through, through that, the, the, the rise of his, his public career. Where did he go to college? Not far from where I live. He went to Bates College in Lewiston, Maine. Okay. And you're, you're living in Maine now. 
I live about 20 minutes south of Lewiston. Yeah. Okay. But um, I will say uh, on that theme of the Insight Meditation Society, uh, one of the things that I and, and several of Michael's friends did was we, we uh, raised some money to uh, pr- to support the purchase of a commemorative bench for Michael that is now situated at the Insight Meditation Society. So if you and it's and it's actually very prominently featured, which I I feel really good about, and I know Michael would love to know this, but um, if you come out the back door of the meditation Dharma Hall and turn right as though you're going to sort of loop around towards the dining room. Yep. But you're outside in that space. There's a little courtyardy type area. No, no well, and that's yep. You'll see the bench next time so, you're there. So the bench is there. It's there. Uh, okay. Facing, I mean, I know this is of interest to a very limited number of listeners, <laughs> but I have to get this clear for some reason. It's facing, um, is it facing what used to be called the annex or, um, was that, is that it's, what it was called? Yeah. The slab of, of granite that they use is sort of, it, it, it's shaped a bit like a little boat, like a little uh, rowboat. And the, the bow of the boat points more or less to the Dharma Hall and the, the back of okay. the boat is, is, would, would be facing, yeah, the annex or I think is now has a more. So you are facing what when you're sitting? I know we've lost all listeners at this point, but you listeners. are facing what when you're, when you're sitting in the. You're facing the institution of, of IMS. You're, 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 okay. you're, you see you're, the Dharma halls on your right, the, the dining halls front and center, and then the dormitories are on your left. Okay. But there, That's you know, nice. I think, I think he had, he did inspire many people to, to come to practice. And, and I think, um, uh, I, I'm sure there will be Dharma, uh, Michael Brooks fans that, that go and enjoy that bench. That's nice. Okay. Well, uh, so anyway, people should Google him. Uh, he's, he's, you know, he lives on. He does. Uh, and um things he wrote uh and and many things that uh he uh, you know videos uh, that he posted um and uh it's funny i don't want to talk about this right now but uh speaking of ims one thing you and i talked about some time ago is some challenges i had sustaining a meditation practice when i you know amid the pandemic when i couldn't go back uh, to IMS uh, for a kind of a recharge retreat every year or two, as I had uh, been accustomed to doing. And maybe if we have time, we can talk about that later on this uh, in this conversation. But where should we start? We, we should we your view? Well, the seg- that- one segue from Michael Brooks to, okay. to your worldview is that I, I think Michael agreed with you that um certain features of your worldview, namely that cognitive bias in the human mind distorts perception of events and the distortion of perception leads to suboptimal forms of engagement and then even possibly less, even more suboptimal forms of outcome. Um, Well, you could call that a, a central premise of Buddhism as well. Yep. Right. That, that, that unless we, uh, take measures to deal with the problem, our view of the world is distorted and, uh, in ways that hurt us and hurt the people we interact with and, and lead, lead to suffering for both. Right. So I think one of the things I'd like to chat about is, you know, I, we, in this, our series of conversations, 
I've tried to get you to outline some of the key features of this worldview slash Dharma of Bob. Um, and over the course of doing that and reading through the comments of some of your followers on, on your Substack newsletter, which is the non-zero newsletter, which thank you. I read religiously, uh, apparently Ezra Klein reads it religiously and, 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 and hopefully more people are starting to, to find their way to it. Um, but one of the comments that I remember seeing was someone mentioning that the, to get the, the understanding of this lens of an analysis and prescription at a more mainstream level, it might behoove you, the articulator to, to figure out, um, less, less jargony terms to use in a way of putting together the picture. Um, now I'm not against jargon. I, I like jargon myself, but, uh, that's something I, a question that, that I hold up now with you is, you know, we, having looked at the ba- basic features of it, how does this, how does the sensibility that you're encouraging, uh, infiltrate the population? Yeah. Okay. And by the way, I don't know if Ezra Klein is a religious reader of my newsletter, but he, he read it enough to have me on his podcast recently. And, uh, I'm grateful for that because it, it turns out, as I discovered, a lot of people listen to his podcast. Um, yeah, let me, and let me say one thing just to try to do what I think you would applaud, given that, that, uh, uh you, you may be more, uh, attuned, uh, to the value of good messaging than I am. Um, uh, which is to try to establish the stakes and, and, and I hope not over dramatize the situation. But my view is that it's uh, close to literally true that if we are going to save the world, uh, people, some substantial number of people, including influential ones, but not only those are going to have to move at least somewhat closer to Enlightenment in the Buddhist sense of the term. I don't mean, you know, get there. I, I, I view enlightenment as kind of a spectrum, you know, awakening kind of a spectrum. And I think you can, you can move short distances in that direction. And I, and I think when you, uh, to, to get back to jargon a little, when you do, uh, even partly, uh, neutralize or erode your, your cognitive biases, that that can be a form of taking a step in the direction of enlightenment. But I do think that the stakes are this high. I, I think there's so many uh, problems facing nations collectively and people collectively that that are problems that are collectively existential. That is, if if they all go unsolved, it could be, you know, kablooey, the end of the whole thing um, that. Uh, we need to do a much better job of working together. And when I look at the things that are keeping us from working together, keeping nations from working together, I, I think it really does g- come back to, uh, distortions of, of perception and, and cognition of the kind that psychologists call cognitive biases and of the kind that, uh, meditation practice can help address. Not to say that's the only way to address them, but I think there is a big intersection there between the, uh, you know, the kind of the aspiration of Buddhist practice and what the world needs. And, uh, and I don't know how, uh, how much of this research there is, but I did find a, a very interesting study that was, I think, done in th- 2013 
titled "Debiasing the Mind with Mindfulness Meditation," and it, and it, I, I couldn't see that I didn't wasn't granted access to the specifics of the study, but the abstract suggested that mindfulness meditators uh, were less prone to sunk cost fallacy and the sunk huh. cost bias. That's interesting. Uh, sunk cost, by the way, is the uh it's sometimes called the Concord fallacy because the uh, from older people remember the Concord. It was a, uh, I guess in re- a boondoggle. It, it was a it was a jet that was put together by Europe and and it it flew faster than the speed of sound, so it could get you from like the U.S. to Paris. And I once took it. I didn't pay for it, uh, but uh, I couldn't afford it. But I, I once took it, and it was fast. I mean, it was like you know a couple hours. Uh, but it was so small uh, that you couldn't get that many people on it, so it wasn't profitable. And the idea was it became kind of clear early on <laughs> that it was not going to be economically feasible. But people said, you know, we put so much into it, you can't stop. Look at how much we've invested. And, and, and the sunk cost fallacy is that kind of thinking because a good economist will tell you, look, it doesn't matter how much you've put into it. The way to think of it is, how much am I going to have to to uh, um, to put into it from here on out, and what is going to be the payoff? And if it's not going to just, you know, if it's not justified in those terms, get out. Um, the is there uh, a more is there a more recent modern geopolitical move that, well, that speaks yeah. to that too? And do you mean like wars we're immersed in, or yeah, I, I guess or, I. Uh, <laughs> Or get, or finally get unimmersed in, or yeah, the, exactly. Yeah, Afghanistan. No, I think, and I think we all face that in our in our lives. You know, it's like uh, I don't want to get uh, too too uh, confessional, but I mean, you know, uh, there are career things I think about. You know, that like, should I really keep doing this? Well, I put so much into it. Uh, you know. Um, well, you know, in, in finding that study, the reason I got directed to it is because I was I was just googling around, looking up things around loss aversion, which is another one of these biases. Bias, and, yeah. and 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 the the one of the uh, the findings that I came to was that loss aversion was kind of the the, the tap root from which uh, sunk cost fallacy and the endowment effect, where you value things that you own more than the market value of it might be, or status quo bias, you get sort of and trained to the status quo, like all of that is, is those are all, uh, eminent or, or manifestations of, of loss aversion, which is just this, this, um, this sense that, 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 that losses way more losses loom more heavily than, than comparable gains. Yeah. Like the experimental uh, test of that is like, I have this, this, uh, mug. Do I have a mug? Well, no, I have a glass. Here's a glass. And, uh, and you say, um, how much would it cost for you to part with that? And, and let's say it has no, no obvious emotional value and there's one exactly like it I can buy. Um, and it turns out that, uh, people will demand much more than the replacement cost for, for the glass. There's just something about letting go of something. You know, they could make money by saying, okay, take it, take it for $10. I can buy another one for five. But, uh, they tend not to want to do that. There's something, maybe this is impre- imprecise language, but there's something about what happens in the, the relationship to the object when the, the designator of the word mine 
is connected to it. So it's when yeah. it's my mug, right. suddenly it, it has greater value. Right. Um, and you can, you can extrapolate that out to my views, my relationship, my, my work, my nation's perspective, whatever. Um, yeah. all of that over endows the, the, the entity with, with more value. Right. Um, and, uh, so yeah, so there, there are all of these, uh, kind of cognitive biases and then famous ones like confirmation bias, uh, you know, noticing and embracing evidence that supports your worldview, uh, either not noticing or finding reasons to reject evidence that's at odds with your worldview. There's, there's a number of these. I wasn't aware of that, uh, that, that study debiasing the mind. And I'm, and I've, I've wondered how much, uh, there is in the way of empirical evidence that maybe mindfulness meditation could help erode some of these, these cognitive biases. It seems to me intuitively that it should be able to help. Right. Intuitively, it seems to be able to help. And that's one thing that I would, you know, in talking to you, I, I would be, I, I would be as a meditator and as a proponent of meditation, I would be interested in, uh, it, it seems like this, this could be tested more, more comprehensively. Like, have you heard of anyone describing a cognitive bias evaluation or a cognitive bias test where it's like any person, lay person could just go online, kind of like a Briggs Myers test and do a, a kind of uh, a, a series of, of, of question answer or problems that evaluate how strongly you are swayed by these perceptual biases? I'm not aware of one and I can imagine that it would be kind of hard to construct, but, uh, I'm not aware of one. No. Because it's just, because one thing, like, if you're, if you're interested in, in getting your worldview, particularly around become, people becoming more conscious of these biases and less susceptible to them, uh, having some sort of quantitative research that validates the, whatever intervention you're offering, in this case, mindfulness, um, would be, I think, helpful. Um, yeah. Yeah, it would be nice. Uh, let me, let me say one thing quickly about why it's my intuition that cognitive bias, at least some cognitive biases might be susceptible to, uh, kind of lessening via mindfulness meditation. And, and that's that, uh, although we call them cognitive biases, I think they tend to involve affect. Yeah. Right. Uh, they tend to involve feelings, emotion. And, you know, if you pay attention, if you're on Twitter or on social media and you, you can see confirmation bias at work and you, you know, the way it shows up is you'll see somebody tweet some piece of evidence that supports your worldview. And if you, if you pay close attention and you may be better at this, if you, if you do mindfulness meditation, but in any event, if you pay close attention, I think you'll see that it makes you a little happy to see that it's a feeling uh, to see evidence that supports your worldview. And you kind of have affection for the information. I mean, you, you, you just, there's almost literally an embrace of the information, a welcoming of the information. Uh, and, and, and that makes you inclined to kind of share it without critical inspection, even like, you know, retweet it, whatever. Whereas if you see information at odds with your worldview, there's a little, there's a bit of aversion to it, almost hostility toward it, 
that inclines you to critically inspect it. It's like, oh, yeah, well, let me see. Like what what study supposedly showed that this is true? And you go and you read the study and you find the flaw. But you don't do that with information that uh, you embrace. And it, and it and it really does. I think I think this reaction is mediated by the, the simple feelings of attraction and aversion. And of course, that's one thing mindfulness meditation makes you more aware of and makes you less susceptible to in principle by virtue of your awareness of it. Uh, and so go and ahead. I've, I've, been, I've been trying to think about that I'll, I'll, in, 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 in different ways too. Um, Cause I think you, I, I agree with you. I think, I think these biases don't, they don't, they don't announce themselves as a little blip on your radar that says you are now being influenced by, Attributionary. You're now being influenced by cognitive uh, confirmation bias. Uh, they do, they, they get channeled through a feeling. You either mm-hmm. feel better or worse or, you know, uh, happy or, or annoyed or, or agitated by something. Um, but the, the slippery slope is that those feelings, A, are very quick. They're very fast and they, they're also so habitual. In a certain sense, where they're, 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 it's like the water, the, the, the water that we're swimming in that we don't even notice. To use that, right. the um, David right. Foster Wallace idea of the fish swimming in water that doesn't know what the water is, um, and and as a result, it, it, we the views that are born from those feelings feel self evident, or you know have a have a have a maybe you could say epistemic validity to them, like a truthfulness to them. That is, that is, that is just not questioned. Mm-hmm. And to do so, to actually interrogate that brings the person do, engaged with that process into, a, a, I think, a profound state of discomfort. It's not comfortable to question a cherished view or to question a cherished position. That's right. And, um, and mindfulness can, in principle, help you just live with that the feeling of discomfort uh to a point where it becomes less less painful you know it's just it's just there and it's not it's no longer such an obstacle to trying to see the situation clearly um and and that's why i would think you know now i would say experiments would be hard to uh to do that 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 get at any of these things but i'd be really surprised if it is the case leaving aside how experimentally verifiable it is or how easy it is to verify i'd really be surprised if it's a case that mindfulness meditation can't help with any cognitive biases at all now my question to you is on um, the conversation we've just had and let's set aside the part about experimental verification. Just when, when we were describing the, the, you know, uh, cognitive biases at work and, and how you can become more aware of them and how meditation can help. Was that to you not a sufficiently user friendly way of describing them? Because I know, you know, part of, part of the reason you want to talk to me about these things is you think that they can be made more, some of them at least, can be made more user-friendly than I'm making them. It's, it's, uh, it's hard to say, um, cause I'm my own sample size of one. <laughs> so it didn't, right. it didn't necessarily feel too jargony to me, but you know, even, 
even the phrase cognitive bias, I, I you know, on the on the general population level, I'm not sure how how tangible that concept is. Um, and and particularly at the level of influencing perception and behavior. Like to, 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 and so I, I really, what I'm more interested in, in, in trying to get you to consider is to, to create stories or to, 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 to analyze specific, uh, kitchen table type scenarios, like the, like we were talking about with the, like the, the cup and, and how much you evaluate the cup or value the cup. Um, but to take examples that people could relate to in kind of their own, in their own lives at a very simple level and then extrapolate or grow out from that to showing how the same dynamic gets played out at say a geopolitical level. Right. I, I don't, I, I think that the connection, the bridge between those will, and, and so that where people can see that overcoming the bias in their personal life leads to a, a you know, a, maybe a more, uh, a better outcome that they would self-define. Because that's the, that was one of the, when the insights that really hit me from Dan Ariely's work, the uh, the behavioral economist who was at, was at MIT. I think he's now down at Duke. Yeah. You know, he he fam- became famous for his book Predictably Irrational, which is that just showing how these biases get people to make decisions that are against their self interest in predictable ways. You, you know, and against the 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 values that they themselves espouse that they hold. Yeah. Um. So. In, in, yeah. So that, do you see what I'm saying? But if you can yeah, see, yeah. But I how- do. I do think there are two separate issues. I, I think, um, in other words, you're saying we need practical applications. We need people. I, I, I think there's two kinds of practical applications you can give people. One is in the kind of self help realm. Your life can be better if if you think more clearly. And here are some ways to do it and and see the world more clearly. Um, Another realm of practical application is the whole world can be better if we as citizens process the news more clearly. There might be fewer wars. We might make more inroads on climate change and so on. And I think you have to do uh one or both of those. I think happily it is – it is. I believe it's the case and in a way – Buddhist uh, doctrine says it's the case that those two things dovetail. In other words, um, seeing the world more clearly can help you and help the world. And that's good news. Uh, I, I would say all of that, I think, is a separate issue from things like uh, from the question of, well, is cognitive bias a term you you should use? Because you could use that term and talk about the practical applications, or you could not use that term and still talk about the practical applications. I think that's a separate question. And I think the question of whether you use terms like cognitive bias partly depends on your audience. I think, I mean, my feeling is that there is an audience, and these are, you know, on balance, better educated people and so on, and and maybe even people of uh, particular ideological persuasions, I don't know, but there, there is a demographic, and I think a somewhat influential demographic, that is more attuned to and interested in the concept of cognitive biases than was the case. 30 years ago, almost nobody had heard that term. It was in the literature, but almost nobody had heard it. Now you can find lots of people who have heard it. And and I think they may resonate to some of this. And I think kind of separate from that, there it can help 
to convey certain ideas in scientific language, right? For for some people, that uh, lends real authority, and um, and so I, I would I would say that I I think um, I think for no a, a certain audience, a certain amount of technical terminology is actually a good thing. Oh, it's it's mandatory for a certain audience. Yeah. The question is, if you are, and and I feel like I'm paraphrasing what I've read in your newsletter, but if, is you, in facing these existential psychological threats, if the, if a a key part of the solution, i.e. survival of the species is an, an advance in, in moral evolution, then it, it would, you know, it would seem that a larger percentage of the population would have to be somewhat swayed into a, a, this different perspective. Um, and I was using, thinking of the example of like sort of the perceptual blind spot that people are made aware of when they take a, a driving certificate, certification test, you know, and, and, and how to mitigate the impact of that, of that perceptual or that, 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 that perceptual blind spot. Well, wait, what um, is the, what is the perceptual blind spot in that context? Sort of, um, oh, you mean the, the, the reason you look in your side view, rear view mirror because there's the blind spot way if you're going to change lanes? Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Right. That's one. Um, but you know, but, but the, the, just the existence of that is something that most people don't even take into consideration or don't even think about it until it's pointed out to them. Or until they almost kill themselves. Right. <laughs> <laughs> One or the other. Yeah. Um, so it's it sort of getting the, the, the whole domain of cognitive bias to the level of the average person that they're, that they're starting to think about how is this influencing day to day decisions, whether mm-hmm. it's around economics or in, interpersonal relationship. Um, cause it, it the, I, I agree with you in the sense that the, I think the, the root of conflict in the human mind heart is the seed of the conflicts we see in the world. Right. Wait, the root, wait a second. Say that again. The root of conflict that you, that we find in the human heart, the root of inter interpersonal intrapersonal conflict. conflict. Okay. Is the same as is, is just writ large at a larger scale um, in the world in the world's conflicts. Uh, I think that's certainly true. Yes. I think that's a, that's one premise of Buddhism that that the the seeds of conflict. Yeah, and and that and, and that it's. Uh, I think Buddhism would go further and say it's the root of suffering. It's the root of, like, even if you were on a desert island and weren't interacting with people on any level, you, you would you would uh, under certain circumstances maybe suffer needlessly as a result of the same some of the same things but but I think I'm getting a little arcane here so go go ahead and forget I No actually well, actually that relates to part of my my own staycation at the end of August here in Maine um you know I, I basically want to What's, what's the definition pl- of a staycation? I may be on one and don't know it. Oh you're, you're, you're um, you have to actually live there full time. I don't know if those that, that keep yeah. track of staycations mandate that you have to stay where you, in your primary uh, residence the whole time. But basically, I was at my primary, re- my only residence mm-hmm. uh, for a few weeks. And 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 my intention was just to unplug and, and disengage from normal workaday things. Um, but the so this is my proverbial desert island. 
And just like a meditation retreat where you, you kind of confront the momentum of all the energy and activity of your day to day when you, when you slow down and stop, Mm -hmm. I experienced the same thing. I wasn't doing an intensive meditation retreat, but just trying to take away many of the the distracting or engaging things that I do for for normal life. And it, 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 just like a retreat, it brought up a ton of anxiety Hmm. just, and I, and 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 it was just a raw form of anxiety that I don't, I can't really attribute to anyone. I mean, I was safe. I was just chilling out, hanging around, but the, the, the feeling that I should be doing something, I'm not doing enough. I'm not extracting enough from my time. All of that came up for a while. And, and I think that's what, you know, it was like, it, it sort of became an informal retreat for me in a sense, similar to what might happen on an intensive Buddhist retreat in that I had to look at that energy and just in, in its raw form. Hmm. And so it's, I think that's what you're speaking to, like the, the desert island, you can see the suffering you, you could generate yourself on the desert island that, that was needless. Yeah. I mean, I was also thinking of like, suppose you're on a desert island with an infinite supply of powdered sugar donuts. And <laughs> I was wondering, I actually wrote, wrote, it, I wrote it down, Bob, this is synchronistic. Yeah. I wrote down something about powdered sugar donuts today, thinking, wondering if I would mention this. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's my favorite example, and then you of, go of uh, you know of gluttony uh, because it's it's a, it's a form of gluttony. I wouldn't mind engaging in for the rest of my life if there was no downside. But um, the uh, you know the, the 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 hunger that keeps you eating them and 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 kind of being in a in a way perennially dis well recurringly dissatisfied. Right, you eat one, it's great, but then. You want another one, and then finally, I guess you're, you're you're you get nauseous or something. But anyway, the 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 what the root of overindulgence um, is, uh, and the root of uh, I guess the dissatisfaction after indulgence is is the kind of grasping. That is, in a way, the root of confirmation bias. You know, you're, you're grasping. You're, you want to. You want to hold on to that thing that confirms your bias. That that that's the um, that confirms your worldview. That's the that that's the connection I was kind of thinking about when I said. I'm not sure, I'm not sure I followed the, the the logic between grasping after a sugar or a powdered donut and grasping after a worldview or. Oh, gras- grasping after evidence that supports your worldview. In, in the case of confirmation bias, I mean the whole issue is 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 attraction and aversion, you know. The, uh, in 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 Buddhism, you know the 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 the, the three poisons, so called three poisons, is often translated as greed, hatred, and delusion, and that works very well for uh, uh, that translation works very well for a lot of purposes, especially. Uh, you know, kind of a modern progressive sensibility, like, yeah, greed is bad. Capitalism is bad. Hatred is bad. War is bad. But those aren't actually good translations. I mean, uh, you know, uh, a better translation would be a more generic kind of not greed just in the sense of money, but, but, but a grasping kind of attraction, you know, a thirst, a tanha. Um, and then, uh, the hatred would be more like just aversion, you know, not, not just aversion to people you don't like. Aversion, like the pushing away, the 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 uh, hostile attitude toward anything, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and so I think that that's the the generic 
root of so so much you know i i that, that anyway that that's my view that's the connection i see between powdered sugar donuts and confirmation bias is so let, me see, uh, let me let me try to reflect that back so a word that i've been thinking of more in the context of greed or desire is 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 the the the, the pattern of addiction mm-hmm. where there's a there's a when when you when you obtain the object that you desire, and you know this better than I do, but there's going to be a, a, a neuro response, uh, neurochemical response of, of dopamine reward, which doesn't last very long and gets you wanting that next mm-hmm. blip of dopamine uh, mm-hmm. response. Um, and then, so then the addiction steps in when you, you continue to, uh, seek or, or enact that behavior in spite of adverse consequences. I think that's the uh, modern working, working definition of addiction, like repeated okay. behavior in, sp- in spite of adverse consequences. So in the case of the donuts, you know, you can still grasp after these in, in spite of uh, feeling like shit or get putting on extra weight or mm-hmm. feeling really sluggish. What's the adverse like, how do you translate that to the adverse consequences of confirmation bias that may not be as visible, palpable, uh, tangible as, say, what happens when you when you binge on powdered sugar? Well, beans? I mean, at the macro level, if you're concerned about the fate of society in the world, I, I think uh, everyone having confirmation bias uh well leads to first of all what's what's called you know this this pathological polarization is one term for it in american politics today some people would use the term tribalism um and then it, it, it you know uh also like war i mean you know wars uh, tend to result from uh mass cognitive biases you know uh, of various kinds and in a very loose sense of the term. I mean, for example, uh, fear, the way fear can distort your perception, uh, may or may not plug into some of the classic cognitive biases like confirmation bias. It can, I think. But in any event, it, it, it has a distorting view on your, on your perception. And it, and, and, and one thing that happens is nations start fearing one another. And then they see, and a nation does something to allay its fear. It takes some defensive measure that it sees as defensive. The other nation sees it as threatening and offensive. Oh, you know, more nuclear weapons, you know, are offensive from our point of view. You may see them as protective. Um, and so you get, get into this cycle of, of, uh, of increased fear. Um, now maybe, uh, Maybe that, that example may not seem to follow so closely on the, on, on the powdered sugar donuts. Um, but, you know, it, 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 it uh, well, you tell me, what is your well, level well, of dissatisfaction with what I just said? I'll try to address it. No, I'm not dissatisfied with what you said. I agree. It's, it's more, uh, two things. If I can remember them both. One is, can you spell that out? Can you walk me through that in a either in a contemporary or historical actual example where you see see that those dynamics at play? Um, 
I forgot the other point that I had. So, I mean, it, it, how, how does, I, and I think this maybe loops back to the loss aversion bit because like, the fear is that if, if an action isn't taken, if, if there isn't an escalation of defense or if there isn't some intervention taken as a response to some provocation, that the fear is that something you value, something you hold and cherish is going to be lost. Mm-hmm. You know, like that, I think that's what that becomes a unifying depolarizing, the, the uniquely weird depolarizing depolar, uh, issues in, in, in the United States yeah. where there's, there's, there's bi, bilateral support for uh, either the, the, Something, something to do with either China or Afghanistan. Like there, there's, there's rare bi- bipartisan support, which I remember hearing you speak with Ezra Klein about that itself becomes problematic around, uh, squashing or repressing dissenting voices. And so there's, uh, yeah, you speak to this better than I can, but, um, how, how does, how does the response to fear activate the kind of biases that that then perpetuate become a feedback loop. This is what we're kind of trying to get to: is how does it become yeah. a negative feedback loop? Yeah, um, I mean, in a way, there's two feedback loops involved. There's there's the one that's only on your side of the equation. So let's take an example that's for the moment not geopolitical. You had talked about fear of losing something. In everyday life, one of the things we're most afraid of losing is status. So if we have some kind of professional rival that we think wants to undermine us, right? Somebody we think kind of wishes us ill, uh, and they're trying to do things, um, to damage our career, damage our status. Maybe they just want some job we have. They want, or they want to be the best in some realm where we want to be the best, uh, or maybe we're pursuing the same mate or something, right? And and that certainly is a zero-sum game. Uh, and and here the the feedback loop is that okay, you 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 start suspecting them of doing things to undermine you. That triggers. That's now your thesis. You, confirmation bias can lead you to see evidence of this undermining where it's not. You, you know, in reading the things they do and imputing motivations to them, uh, you start building up all of this evidence of, of their, uh, their, how, how threatening they are that may not actually be valid. But the more evidence you build up, uh, the more fearful you are and the more inclined you are to see evidence. Okay. So there's, there's that kind of feedback loop on one side and that can apply at the international level. Oh, China is the enemy. They want us, they wish us ill. Um, God, uh, you know, I'm suddenly attuned to evidence that that's the case. And the more evidence I see, the more scared I am and, and the more evidence I'm going to see. So there's, there's that feedback loop. But there's also the bilateral feedback loop, which is that we get fearful and actually do things that we think of as assuaging our fear. Oh, we're going to send a destroyer, uh, you know, into waters we have not traditionally sent destroyers into just to send them a message that they shouldn't invade uh, Taiwan or whatever. You know, this is just a defensive uh, from somebody's point of view, ours or Taiwan's. It's a defensive measure. 
Okay, we're, it doesn't mean we're going to invade them or anything. Um, but then they may take that as an offensive measure. This is a, a famous thing. I think the term is in international relations, a security dilemma, uh, which is you want to do things that make you feel more secure, but then they may feel make the other side feel more threatened. And uh, you want to, you know, you think if we build a few more nuclear weapons, that'll be a more effective deterrent to their nuclear weapons. But then they feel vulnerable and build more nuclear weapons. So there's that feedback loop as well. And, um, you know, in both cases, uh, you you can, you know, both kinds of feedback loops, uh, uh, the, the, the kind of unilateral one that's happening within your own head and the bilateral one can play out both at the geopolitical level and at the interpersonal level. You know, you, you, you have your personal rivals, you have your geopolitical threats. Um, it's, it's kind of the same thing. And I think you would probably encourage me to, in a way, emphasize that, right? I mean, emphasize both the kind of, uh, personal self-helpy applications and the geopolitical world-helpy applications. Yeah. And, and the, and the reason around that, that suggestion for messaging is I think more people, the more that people can, can tangibly see these biases play out in their own life, you know, it, it, it can, I think it will lead to the kind of perspective taking at least, you know, immediately in their own life that you would like to see more, more and more in the world. Mm-hmm. Right. So that, it becomes, you get sort of, you, you, it's, I think of it like a training wheel thing. If you can start to see it in your own world, your own immediate life, how some, uh, one of these biases might, might lead to poor interaction or poor decisions, poor choices. And, and then really get a, a felt, it's just a felt sense of it, of how it plays out. Then you can start to open to start to see it more in, in, in international conflict for example, or political polarization. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's challenging. There are rivals. There are people who wish you ill. That's a true fact. It's not totally in your head. You know, it's just... But but the question is, um, A, uh, to what extent is dwelling on that going to actually warp your worldview and get you to imagine... Uh, threats that aren't there or threats that are bigger than they are uh, and B, just how much is it going to make you suffer? You know, um, the whole one thing to remember is that the whole and, and, and this I find people resonate with when you talk about the environment that our some of our impulses were designed by natural selection for as opposed to the modern environment, you know, you, uh, you know, in a hunter gatherer environment, um you know, the classic example is kind of rage, the retributive impulse, you know, and you, you see somebody, you know, you, you see road rage playing out. And it's like, this is crazy. Why are you speeding up to, like, bring this guy to justice? What are you going to do when you catch the person, you know? This can only lead to bad things for you or no things at all, right? Either you won't catch the person or, or won't do anything or you'll do something that just won't be good for you. Um, where did that come from? Well, you know, in a hunter-gatherer environment, it, it very often made sense to, uh, if people tried to 
steal something from you, disrespect you, it can make sense to uh, challenge them. And even uh, even if you incur some short term loss, even if you even if you uh, you get beat up a little in the course of trying to beat them up in a pragmatic way, that can make sense because you're living in a world where um, everyone uh, who is observing this is somebody you deal with. OK, you're sending a message to everybody, you're sending a message to everybody. Whereas on a highway, at a, that, at a that, scale where that message is received, right? Exactly, and 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 in the modern world, you know, you, you got to ask yourself, like, um, if I go around fuming, and I, I actually do this, I know this from experience. I do fume about people. Okay, <laughs> it's uh, it's 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 funny. I it's not funny. It's kind of sad. Uh, the uh, uh, you know, I do this Friday podcast with this old friend of mine, Mickey Kaus, who turns out to be a, have been a Trump supporter, a, uh, in the sense of having voted for him and so on. So there's a certain amount of tension and we, and we do a podcast that's open to the public. And then we do one that's behind a Patreon paywall called the parrot room. And pretty recently I've really gone off on in the parrot room where I feel a little more secure. Like it's a much smaller you know, more intimate environment about some of my professional, uh, rivals. Well, uh, you know, or people, well, not just rivals, but people I think have, have actively, uh, sought to do me harm. I mean, basically one person, but, uh, and first of all, in, in asking myself why I did that, I think part of it is that when I went on vacation, it actually disrupted my meditation practice. I wasn't, I think I was less uh, equanimous and less, and more uh, prone to that kind of thing. But, but, but the, anyway, the take home is like, what good is that doing me? You know, it's, uh, fuming about some person is probably not doing much damage to, uh, to them. Right. So, and in any event, it's not, it's not sending the message. It's not like how many people listening to this are thinking, well, I better not mess with Bob. I mean, how many of them were going to do that? How many of them were in a position to do that, to damage me, right? It's like, it just doesn't make sense. And, and, uh, I, this is, we, we, I've now wandered a little distance from, uh, the original example, but the, the, the generic take home is one thing to keep in mind is these impulses that guide us were, were designed for a very different environment. So, they may have actually made sense in a, in a self-helpy way sometimes in the environment they were designed for and not make sense, uh, even in a selfish way now. And that was, that was, I, I think I brought that up the last Dharma of Bob episode we had. I, I you, and you, you gave me the phrase mismatch theory, which I think is a really important one. And that's, that's yeah. kind of the, 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 the idea of like a, a basic concept that I think a lot of people, I would like a lot of people to have. Yeah. In their head a little bit more. And I apologize for no doubt repeating the road rage example for like the 50th time. I, uh, but, but, uh, it's, no, the, no, no, it's, no. it's such a clear cut one. That was not re- on repeat. I don't think by my mm-hmm. memory. Um, but one thing I want to, or two things I want to, one specific to the, the broader topic here, um, is around, you mentioned, if I heard you correctly, it sounded like venting that rage in the parrot room. You said it had a, had a, a negative impact on your meditation? No, it's the other way around. I, I realized, 
I taped that shortly after relocating and starting my vacation. And the relocation had kind of disrupted my meditation practice. I didn't like bring my cushion and have my place where I do it in the morning. And I had gotten uh, kind of undisciplined about it. I just wasn't doing it much. And I and I think that was uh, part of it. But in terms of the effect of the of the rant, it just made me suffer. I just felt I just felt silly. And 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 I felt it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't uh, wasn't the example I want to set either. You know, it wasn't it wasn't good, uh, uh, you know. Well, if I can reframe it, I would say I think it is exactly the example you're trying to set, which is not the actual behavior of ranting, but the 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 retrospective almost contrition around the rant and the seeing the yeah. drawbacks and the limitations of what the ranting does to you. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's and I and I, I think that's just something that, that that people may not appreciate about how the meditation can work, and that if you're aware of that kind of dynamic, that's not bad meditation. Now you're seeing the the kind of the 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 immediate impact that the bias and then the the the, the strong feelings that that these biases generate, how, how that impacts and and, and affects your, your state of being. Yeah. Um, one one selfish question that I haven't been able to figure out with, and this is off topic a little bit, but it relates to the parrot room. Is 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 the parrot room only available? By going to the Substack non-zero page, uh, there's actually two ways. If you subscribe to the non-zero newsletter, you get you get access to the the, the videos and the audios. Um, the one there's one thing you don't get access to that way, which is just the comment section on Patreon. You can mm. you 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 could comment. On Substack, you know, on, on the, on, when we put out the parrot room, there's a place you can comment, but that hasn't really gotten critical mass. And, uh, because most of the, the parrot room, um, there's now, we just crossed the thousand marks. There's a, a thousand people actually, uh, paying for the Patreon access. Um, and, uh, I mean, separate from the, the ones who have, have access to the, the, the content by virtue of subscribing to the newsletter. Uh, and then, I mean, if you want me to get into the gory details, there's a, there's a slightly higher Patreon level, uh, that, that, that in turn gives you access to the paid version of the newsletter. Uh, so it's a, it's, it's more complicated than it should be, but, um, the, but the that's simple the question. question. Yeah. Well, the, the, the follow up simple question is, have you considered distributing the parrot room audio in podcast form uh, as a member only feed? What's there? You get that as a newsletter subscriber. In, but is there an RSS feed or? Yes. Or, and okay. the same where, and the same at Patreon. If you want to, uh, um, you know, if you just follow the link in the, in the Friday non-zero newsletter I send out, um, at the bottom, uh, there's a link that gets you to a place that it should be self-explanatory what you do from there to create a podcast feed that is the parrot room on your, on okay. your podcast app by using the RSS. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's, that's why I have not figured that out yet. And that's, I, I'm okay. I'm and are you, are you getting access through the newsletter? Yes. Yeah. Okay. But, so, so I, I should, I should maybe make that clearer, but if you, yeah, if you go to, uh, 
to the Friday newsletter, scroll to the bottom and click. It should be clear. We're, 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 we're at, at, at fault if it's not. I mean, I mean, there's a place on the, it takes you to a place on Substack where the Substack people Give, uh, give, give some t- tutorial on created an interface that should make it clear. Yes. Okay. I'll look into that. Um, so a couple of directions to go, but I know you wanted to, to, to give an update about your own practice at some point, And I don't know if that would yeah. fit in here. So I had, we, we had talked about this in past conversations. The, uh, the challenge for me of uh, because of the pandemic, not being able to go to, you know, your classic week-long, 10-day-long meditation retreat every couple of years, because I think I had become kind of dependent on that to recharge my daily practice. You know, it's like I come out of a retreat, I'm feeling very, quote, good at meditation. Um, that's the way you're not supposed to talk. But, uh, you know, in other words, I, I, I don't have a hard time, you know, kind of like if i'm if if i'm starting by my my session by focusing on the breath i don't have a hard time of that i i i naturally sink into a pretty mindful state without much uh difficulty you know because a, a meditation retreat in my experience really you know there's a reason they call it practice and a meditation retreat is intensive practice and and the the skill level improves but then uh, it can fade over a year or two. And so you go back, you get it recharged. And, um, in the absence of that recharge, I, I felt, uh, my practice had become kind of difficult. And I think I've, uh, I found a partial solution. One is just lower your expectations. Uh, you know, not, not demand that, uh, you, you, you attain some, some blissful state every time, um, or even, anywhere near every time, just accept it for what it is. As I think I told you last time, for me, isn't that the, the essence of the practice itself to not grasp or reach for any particular state? You know, it is and it isn't, but I I think, (laughs) I I think yes, but I will say. Because when you say lowering, lowering your expectations, I hear you're actually aligning the intention of the practice now with the, the heart of it. Yeah. At the same time, I think there's a, there's, um, there's an aspect, a feature of kind of the modern American approach to mindfulness meditation that hasn't always and everywhere been such a big part of it. And that's like, you know, self-compassion, Forgiveness. I mean, as you know, uh, you know, you can, you can find, uh, well, you can find very harsh admonitions and, and reprimands in the ancient literature, uh, uh, you know, uh, and, uh, and you can, you can find, uh, the, the insistence that you be harder on yourself. You know, it, it's, there's that. And, and, I, and, I, I, and I, I can speak firsthand. I worked with, I think, the, the, the Burmese teacher who is one of the most aggressive taskmasters in okay. that vein that you're describing, Saida Upandita. He just, you know, he, he would basically say, Andrew, you, you cannot try hard enough and you're, and he would say you're wasting your time by not trying harder. Okay. Preach it, but, brother. 
<laughs> well, that, that, but that's the thing. It, 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 uh, I think most people that have gone through that system, including myself, it's, you know, that might work in, in, in that particular context. And there's, there's been suggestions that because Asians subscribe to a doctrine of reincarnation, that they don't feel the, the fire under their tush quite as much as Westerners who only maybe believe in one life is all you get. Uh, uh, that seems pretty far fetched, frankly, but. Uh, I, 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 anyway, I, I personally, um, let me put it another way. It's like, I remember my first meditation retreat, uh, I was frustrated because I couldn't focus on my, I'd never had, you know, meditated much at all. And I, and I was trying hard to focus on my breaths. I couldn't, I, I would like get to four, five, six, seven, eleven. And then lose focus and then realize I'd lost focus and get mad at myself. And of course, the meditation teacher, when I had a, a check in two or three days in the retreat said, you know, no, it's good. I mean, every time you notice that you've lost, quit noticing your breath, that's, that's victory. So first of all, look at it that way. But the, and I would say relatedly, I did start giving myself what in golf is called a mulligan. Yeah, I just want to pause you on the, on that. So yeah, I mean, uh, I, I don't want to lose this because, and I, I forgive forgive me if I if we've talked about this before, but the what the teacher said about seeing yourself get lost, I think that I think that itself is, you know, it, it, central to your dharma in a certain sense because the the at the root of these biases is the conviction of the I that has them that's correct. And when you see yourself get lost and wake up to it, that erodes. I mean, first off, I mean, you just, did you intend to get lost? And, and the answer is going to be no. No one focusing on their breath intends to get lost in some kind of uh, thought stream or, mm-hmm. or fantasy or whatever. But to see that that happens again un- erodes bit by bit it just chips away at the edifice of sort of the the sense of self that sees itself in control of 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 everything at the same time okay <laughs> uh i mean it's true on this meditation retreat that uh being a little more forgiving of myself helped Okay. You know, like I was saying, in golf, there's this thing called a mulligan, which is when you're playing casually with friends, um, you can, uh, on one hole, you get, you get to choose at one point during the day, you hit a bad drive and you just say, I'm not counting that. I'm going to hit another drive. Okay. That's a mulligan. I'm taking a mulligan. You get one per 18 holes when you're playing among friends. And I started thinking of it that way. I started thinking like, okay, if I, get to seven breaths and then realize, oh shit, I lost it. I haven't been counting. I lost it at seven. I'm just going to start at eight. I'm not going to go back to one. I'm going to start at eight. I get to do that once. Okay. Each, each time I start at one, I get to lose myself and, and not take off, you know, credit for it and have to start at zero. I can go, oh, lost it at seven. Okay. Eight, nine, 10. And, and so I gave myself that degree of forgiveness and it worked, but it worked in the sense that I got better at focusing on my breath because I still had the aspiration to focus on my breath. 
And focusing successfully on my breath brought me absolutely massive rewards, okay? In terms of the rest of the retreat and the things that happened and attaining greater mindfulness and even on that retreat attaining much more dramatic things than just classic mindfulness. And and what I want to say is if if the forgiveness uh, or, or the casualness of your approach gets to the point where you've lost the aspiration to focus on your breath, that a that can be okay because as I told you last time, worst case for me is better than average mind wandering. That that's not a loss if that's what the day is, you know. And but at the same time, there are places you can get by establishing a certain degree of focus that you're not going to get otherwise. So. If you're just, if you, if you just sit down every day and your mind wanders and you say, well, Josh said that's fine. This is success. This is victory. And you get up. It is fine. And it's better than not sitting down at the same time. There are depths you can get to through successful focus that you're not going to get to otherwise. And you're kidding yourself. If you say, well, there just are no, you know, everything is victory. It's like everyone gets a participation trophy, you know, (laughs) the gloves are about to come off, Bob. Yeah, no, I'm sorry, but I I really feel this strongly. Okay. No, I I, I can, I can feel your, your, your strong feeling on this. The, the, The thing I would question is the phrase, the only way to get focused is by focusing on the breath. No, I didn't, I, 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 I did not even remotely say that. I did not okay, utter that. that phrase. I did not utter that phrase because for one thing, you can, in fact, uh, I mean, you can focus on all kinds of things, first of all, to establish concentration. The classic right. text on mindfulness, okay, so, so, of course. So, so, but you are saying to get concentrated or, and, and maybe we can make, use some other words for concentration, but a sense of stillness, a sense of unmoving presence. Right. Undistracted awareness. Right. Those, those are phrases that would fit to, I think, what you're intoning with concentration. Right. That the way to get to that is through applied focused attention on something. Is that accurate? To what you're saying? For me, for me, alternatives to that have not worked. And, And I would say further, that is, of course, the prescription in the classic mindfulness text, the Satipatthana Sutta. You know, it's, it's, you don't have to focus on your breath. But you focus on something, focus on part of your body, you focus on this, you focus on that. That is a text that emphasizes focus. Okay, if you want to go into the text, then, okay, and also the fourth foundation gets you focusing on the hindrances. So, what I mean by bringing that up is that, classically speaking, the experience of stillness, the experience of undistracted attention arises when the hindrances are not operative. So when the, the hindrances of desire, the hindrances of aversion, the restlessness, the drowsiness, the sleepiness, the doubt, when mm-hmm. those energies are not operating in your mind, the experience is one of unified presence. And so, 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 no, hang on, hang on. I mean, I'll, t- yeah. uh, that's your assertion. I, I just don't, I just don't know exactly what that means. And, and I don't know if it's, it would be the case for me, but. Well, well, it's, it's something that I've 
discussed with colleagues in the meditative world and, 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 and listened to students too, that you're, you're essentially describing a path to stillness. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the path is focus on something when your mind wanders, maybe give yourself a mulligan, but come back to that thing that your mind has wandered from. And, and you're right that that is a conventional way that practice is taught, um, in the West, even. Well, and that's, it's a conventional way mindfulness is taught. We should say, of course, there are totally other traditions. There's, there's Zen meditation that doesn't involve that and, and could, could, no, might well no, get you to stillness. And I'm not saying it won't. I'm, I'm saying the same tradition though, in the same Theravada okay. tradition. Okay. Contemporary, contemporary teacher would say, focus first on these, these challenging mind states and get to know them. And so that's where, you know, you, what I was trying to recommend last time is being a little bit looser in the practice to let, to really let the full bloom of these distract, quote unquote, distractive energies of mind become into your consciousness and let them be known. So there's familiarity, uh, brought to them or, or developed within them. And it's, I mean, I, cause I think that's what really happens on a retreat anyway, is that you go on retreat. The first several days are utter hell usually because you, people experience the full brunt of all of those uh, habitual energies of pushing away, grabbing after something pleasant in their mind. And it's the, the tool of the breath is, is a way to step, step out of the kind of the, the, the ferocity of that, that stream and to give yourself a, a stable place to, uh, that, to, that you can rest on. But that's just one Avenue into the experience of presence. You could still, I would argue, explore and get to know desire as you're encouraging people to, 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 to explore, to understand the impact of that feeling and how, and to wake up out of being identified with the feeling and, and having greater presence to the feeling in doing that, you start to feel the intrinsic stillness of presence with the hindrance. Wait, in doing what, what is, what is, and, what and, is the substitute for focusing on your breath, focusing on the hindrance? If the hindrance is there, yeah, focusing on the hindrance. Okay, and what are the hindrances again? The five hindrances are uh, desire. So here's your greed, aversion, your hatred, restlessness, low energy or sleepiness, and doubt. And and this is effort. Even that takes effort and aspiration. Right. It's just, it's a different way of coming to the same kind of condition, I think. So it's a different way of coming to presence. And, and, and this is something I learned at IMS with, with teachers, uh, like Steve Armstrong, Camo Masters, who had worked with a Burmese teacher, Saida Utejaniya, who, who made, who shifted this to, to, as, as a way of building samadhi. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and so, like particularly on a retreat, and I would say this could this would apply to a daily sitting practice in in ordinary conditions, because the beginning of retreat is probably going to be more similar to what daily sitting experiences are like for most people. You know, you don't have the momentum of buildup of mindfulness that a retreat uh, brings when you sit down to your cushion every day or you sit right. down in your everyday life. So, if and this is what I was trying to get at, maybe not so well in our last or last time we tried to talk about this, but. If you're trying to use the breath as the the doorway into undistracted still uh, presence, mm-hmm. and you see your mind slipping off the breath all the time, that that I think build brings you into the situation of your frustration with your practice. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I actually don't even do that, and, and in fact, 
I was going to say, um, for me, the, the, the twofold partial solution to my problem has been, A, kind of lower my expectations a little in, in the morning meditation, but B, I've set my, uh, my smartwatch for a time in the evening that leads me to do a second short meditation. And on that meditation, I don't even think about the breath. I mean, in general, if I can really pay attention to anything in a sustained way, that's victory. Like, uh, I mean, I don't divide it into the five hindrances, but uh, because there's all kinds of things that can show up that, you know, I don't want to get started thinking, wait, which hindrance would this, you know, it's like, you can feel anxiety. You you can feel restlessness in your leg. You can feel all kinds of things that that get your attention. And in fact, one approach to mindfulness um, that uh, a teacher I did a retreat with suggested is just sit down and see what presents itself to your awareness most prominently. You know, could be a feeling, could be a sound, whatever, and just work uh, from there. Uh, and by the way, one thing I've found is that if you do that and confine it to the body, it's just like, what is it in your body that gets your attention? You often wind up, you, you can get led back to the breath because almost every feeling in, in your body, a lot of feelings in your body are actually going to fluctuate in accordance with your breath if you pay attention. Um, but, but anyway, all that aside, I'm, um, I, I'm, 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 ha- any kind of focus, that I attain, you know, I consider kind of a good thing. And one thing I like about that second uh, meditation session is by that time in the day, there's kind of more going on in a certain sense in, in, I, I don't know, it's hard to explain. It's like sometimes in the morning, it's like my whole being is so mushy. There's almost, it's like there's nothing jumping out encouraging you to notice it. I don't know if that makes sense. But by the end of the day, there may be anxieties, there may be frustrations, there may be this, there may be that. And you sit down and there are just more things with edges to pick up on, you know? That makes it's sense. Like, yeah, it's like sometimes I say that um, in a way, in a certain sense, anxi- uh, in a certain sense, maybe anxiety is easier to deal with than sadness because it has edges. It's like, you know, you can, you can successfully become aware of either in a way that helps neutralize it for practical purposes, but anxiety is really there. Like it, it, it it's got an edge. But anyway, um, so I, I want to say I'm not, it's not, it's not that, oh, wow, if I didn't count 30 breaths, that's failure. It's that if I sit down in the morning and don't become particularly aware of anything, that's failure. And I am not going to let go of the word failure. You can try to make me let go of it, Josh. Ain't going to happen. Because <laughs> there is, you do meditate for a reason. There is in some sense a goal. And whenever there's a goal, there's a possibility of not reaching it. Sorry. <laughs> well, this is where there's that, that paradox of meditation. What is the goal, Bob? Well, uh, you can you can describe it at many levels. You, you can say, well, the goal is to improve my life. How does it improve your life? Well, it gives me more uh, equanimity uh, or it makes me more aware of uh, feelings that are leading me into a bad place and less inclined to follow them. You can describe the goal in all kinds of ways, but there is a goal. You don't meditate for no reason at all. 
I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. I'll tell you, um, there, there are people who come pretty damn close to saying it if you examine <laughs> the implications of the way they're talking about it. Well, you know, to, to respond directly to what you're just reporting from your practice, you know, the, the phrase that Upandita would use, and, you know, and I got this if, Wait, he's the a harsh, few, he's the harsh of the Burmese. He was, he was the hardcore guy. He's, he's yeah. no longer alive, but he, you know, he, he was the lion of. God, of, I wish uh, I, he, he should have been my teacher. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was, it, he, I would have gotten he, along famously with him. He played, he played some psychological warfare, but he would say again and again, the only task of the meditator is to be aware of the object that's arising moment to moment. Whatever objects are present. So when you're sitting in the morning feeling unfocused, and this is, this is coming back to, if you want to be Dr. Nair and quote the Satipatthana Sutta, this is in the third foundation to be aware of the unfocused or distracted mind. That's the practice. It's not to have an absence of distraction. It's if there's distraction there to know that distraction is present because it's the knowing that, 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 the, the 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 recognition that there's an awareness knowing the distraction mm-hmm. that's being developed that's the goal the awareness itself just to to remember recollect to to feel the the impact of just a, what awareness is and the awareness isn't defined by the, the, your awareness is no different from when it's present to the breath or when it's present to the distraction, the quality of knowing, the mindfulness that's arising that recognizes both okay. of those is, ide- is so, identical. So even you would lost. agree. So even you would agree that if you fail to become aware even of that, you have failed. You're, you're really pinning me down. Um, if the, I would say, if you're aware of the fact that you failed, you succeeded. If you're aware of the fact that you what feel if, what that if you're you not failed. even aware of the fact you feel what if what if what if the, the 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 bell goes off it's been 20 30 40 minutes and only then you go oh shit <laughs> I wasn't aware of a single fucking thing <laughs> but then you're aware of the fact that you weren't aware of a single fucking thing so that moment is 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 I, I'm that's sorry. All, that, I, I don't think that moment is actually going to do me very much good as a practical matter I don't think that moment is going to improve my life if, 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 if 40 minutes happens, the bell goes off and I go, man, that was 40 minutes of unawareness. I just don't seeing that lead to like better social relations and the end of war. I'm sorry. No, no, not, 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 not immediately, not immediately, but it's, it's what I'm trying to get to or express is that the, the attitude that we, the mindset you want to go into the practice with is one that is inclusive of whatever happens. And there is no, I mean, this is, I'm paraphrasing Joseph Goldstein. There is no hierarchy of experience from the perspective of Pasana. All experience mm-hmm. is just, to quote his teacher, Manindra, all experience is just empty phenomena rolling on. Right. So if you're, if you're, Seeking, I don't know if you do hear that there's a, there's a subtle seeking and grasping after certain kinds of experiences to, that you correlate well, that is with, the paradox with good meditation. Of, that is the paradox of meditation. And I'm not sure there's a way around it. You are trying to do something, but you know, if you look at Joseph's book, his first book, I think the experience of insight, it's yep. pretty strict. It's like, it's like, uh, focus on one point 
where the breath is coming in. Some people vary that and for a while to focus on one point and then another point that the breath is hitting in the nose. Don't do that. Don't do that. That's read the book. Okay. No, I have, I have, I mean, and I think, you know, that in fairness to Joseph, that was written early, early Joseph. in his early career. And he was just back from intensive work with this guy, Upandita okay. among other teachers. So there, you know, we're talking about skillful means and it, it and and you using different tools in service of the of the the, the deeper intention or or you know, even heart mission mm-hmm. and um the thing that i think i see common to many of these traditions is that it's not about what's happening it's about the recognition or the access to the awareness that notices what's going on mhm so I think I think you know to use yeah. a metaphor. I I feel like when you go on retreat, and I know this experience too. Your mind gets very clear. You or you feel that I should say you feel the clarity of the mind relative to things coming and going within it. Mm-hmm. So you have a sense of your mind being like the, the as the Tibetans describe as the blue the the wide open blue sky. Now I feel like when you get back to daily life, you're noticing a lot more clouds, a lot more weather pattern in the mind, and wanting or hankering for the more open dimension of, of the, 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 the cloudless mind. But that's a form of subtle attachment. Yeah, I, I do. I had heard, I don't think I've read it, but I had heard that there's a sutra in which uh, the Buddha refers to meditation as the one healthy attachment or something. Is that, uh, have you heard this? I think- um, I don't know that particular sutra, but I, I, I think the, if I'm correct, the, the word that differentiates between the, the grasping after sense pleasure and the grasping after, say, the Dharma. Right. Is that there's, there's Tana, which is grasping after some kind of sense right. pleasure or, or just aversion to something. But then there's also Chandra. There's this wholesome desire for, with liberation, compassion, et cetera. Yeah. I haven't looked that up too recently, so don't, don't hold, I hold me too hold tightly to it. it. I, I also, by the way, uh, have not recently revisited the sunk cost fallacy and I suddenly fear that I may have misdescribed it. So, uh, I want to throw that out there too. Um, okay. the, uh, so we've, uh, been talking probably too long. We're not, we're not quite Joe Rogan length, but, uh, it's been an hour and a half. So, um, maybe we should, uh, show Pause. some mercy for people who have, uh, stuck with us, who have stuck with us. And, um, but this has been helpful. And, and I think, and, and, and I think, you know, the thing we agree on is, uh, if you're meditating and you succeed in paying attention to anything, you know, that's a good thing. Um, and, uh, and also, I think we agreed you shouldn't waste time chastising yourself for your mind having wandered. Um, and I do mean what I said, you know, this thing when I said better than average mind wandering, I find that if I close my eyes for a sustained period of time and just let my mind wander, uh, sometimes it wanders onto like, you know, some good idea or some way of handling something that I need to handle or something. It just... I think it's more likely to do that than it is if I'm walking down the street and my mind is wandering. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because at least you don't get distracted from the wandering <laughs> when your eyes are closed anyway. Uh, the, uh, I'm not sure how consonant that is or isn't with other things I just said, but, um, in consideration any, of your lis- listener's time, I, I will, I'll hold back on, you'll, you'll hold back on, you won't, uh, go further in. with that. Uh, anything else though you quickly want to say? I want to, uh, well, uh, before we started recording, I had brought up, uh, the work of Philip Tetlock. All right. And Pete, and Peter Skoblik. Yep. So Peter recently, I recently saw something on Twitter. I mean, Philip, Philip Tetlock is kind of, uh, I guess famous for, uh, looking at what is, what is and isn't conducive to, to successful prediction. Uh, and then Peter Skoblik, whom you and I, it turns out both know from very different realms, um, yes. uh, had collaborated with him on something. I, I, I didn't, I didn't have time to look it up. It just caught my eye on Twitter. I, I've caught a few things that they've collaborated on. I don't know okay. the extent of their collaboration, okay. but it, it, it seems, as I was trying to say, it seems to be to sit within the, the, a broad sense of the Dharma of Bob in terms of looking at, Cognitive biases, how they affect decision making, and then how those dis- the, the the predictions that come from those biases lead to uh, inaccurate predictions about real world events. Yeah. Now that's uh, I need to look into in, into his stuff and their stuff more. Yeah. Um. So they'll be they will be maybe get them both together or individually on the, on the show. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've. Uh, I've got to get more systematic in, in using, uh, in using the right show to examine some of these things. Bring, bring on people who know more about them than I do. Hard as that may be for me to imagine, could be the case. Lastly, how is the book coming? Book? What book? I mean, the, so the book, uh, the newsletter, I, I assume you're referring to my, uh, my, vow in my newsletter try to write a book actually called or at least deserving of the title the apocalypse aversion project which is uh kind of recurring theme in the in the especially i guess maybe the paywalled version of the newsletter for for subscribe paid subscribers um uh i i gotta say uh not a lot of progress um i am i do have reason to believe that i am now going to be able to get more serious about building something, uh, a kind of a resource site that deserves the term Apocalypse Aversion Project and kind of is a place people can go to more easily figure out what I mean by the term, what the dimensions are, how, uh, you know, what, uh, what I think could bring on something almost worthy of the name the apocalypse if we don't solve these global problems, what the psychological roots of our failure to solve the problems are and so on. So I do, I do, uh, I, I'm optimistic about starting to be able to present a coherent, uh, a more coherent package, uh, within, um, within a couple of months, I'd say, as it'll start showing up, um, on, online and be accessible via the newsletter. Um, the uh the non-zero newsletter i should remember to say in self-promotion mode um but the book I, i've just you know between the newsletter and the podcast i mean i've written things in the newsletter that are 
could in some sense be parts of a book. It's just that it, they, they're not, none of them amount to clean chapters where you just slap mm-hmm. them together. Um, uh, but, you know, my agent very recently uh, said he should, he wants to talk to me. So who knows? Maybe, maybe he'll light a fire. It seems like the right time. Oh. Yeah, it does. Uh, a lot of things swirling around right now that, that really seem, uh, that they would benefit from the, the wise and sagacious view that you. Well, that nice you know. of you to say that. Maybe, maybe we should talk offline about whether there's an easy way to, to turn all this into a book. Uh, right now, just, uh, it's the all this that's taking all my time, meaning the newsletter and the, you know, the right. podcasts and, and, and stuff. But, uh, but I appreciate, uh, I really do appreciate your interest in this and your willingness to guide me through this and, uh, put up with my <clears throat> resistance to some of your meditation guidance. Although I don't think there's that much of a gap in the end. Uh, I don't think there's much gap. It's just, it's more language more, around more rhetorical. how to get there. More rhetorical, right? More, you know, me being the, the wanting to be a recalcitrant student whenever possible. And, uh, and, and I want to, I want to again, you know, I, I want to kind of close, uh, again, just, uh, repeating our appreciation of everything Michael Brooks did. Uh, and, and it's still out there. Uh, and one of the things he did is, is without trying, but, uh, he led to this series of conversations, uh, between us, which I like. No, to yeah, think. He, he predicted yeah. it. He predicted it, Bob. Yeah. You told he me ga- this. He gazed into his crystal ball years before. And not just predicted our conversations, but predicted your conversations with him. Yeah, but he, that that came that came out. I mean, in, in, at the memorial, more than one person got up and, re, and and announced how when they first met Michael Brooks, he within the first few minutes mentioned his aspiration to be president or uh, a senator. I mean, you know, this is late teenager who would yeah. say these kinds of things. I mean, he yeah. had, he he just had tremendous aspiration. Yeah. Uh, well, and he was he was very determined. Um, and, and, uh, and he achieved a whole lot. Uh, so Google him. Yes. Uh, he's all, he's all over YouTube. All over YouTube. Yeah. And he wrote a book about the intellectual dark web and discussed that with me on, uh, on my show. It's all there. Uh, I and, need to and, read, listen and, to that. I haven't, I haven't gotten a copy of that book. And I co-authored the book with you. Is the yeah. Buddha is it the Buddha's playbook or I'm, the Buddhist? It's the Buddhist playbook. I, I it, it's only available as a PDF a ebook on my site right now. Um, but I'm so, I have I have plans to get it back into a, a printed so people circulation. Go, go to what URL to to get the PDF? JoshSummers.net. All right, and and there's a it's a it's a PDF ebook with some guided meditations that I did. If people are interested, okay. I'm sure there are m- many ten bucks. M- Ten bucks for it all. Can't can't beat that. Uh, and uh, I'm sure there's a lot of stuff at your site. And and thanks again, Josh. So let's you know let's do this down the road. Let's continue until I am enlightened, or vice versa. Oh, I thought you already were. If you're not enlightened, uh, I'm afraid I have no interest in in getting further guidance from you. By your you definition. I will never be enlightened. <laughs> I think, and I think that's the right definition, but we can argue about that later. Next time. Uh, okay. Thanks, Josh.
Thanks, Bob. See you next time. Okay, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Bob. Um, I'll be looking forward to my next installment with him and delivering that to you. Um, before you go, though, if you're at all interested in the synergy of yoga and meditation, specifically the synergy of yin yoga, a very contemplative practice of, of, of asana, physical postures that works really well in, in terms of developing and supporting a meditation practice, um, do head over to my site at joshsummers.net, specifically uh, to the shop page. Um, and I have a whole new interface for some of the on-demand workshops, courses, and trainings that Terry and I have put together. So if you're interested in learning about yin yoga and its relationship to meditation and how it all helps harmonize one's energy from a Chinese medical perspective, head over to joshsummers.net forward slash shop and you'll see the offerings we have um, um, there. And any support or any purchase that you make at the shop page goes directly to support the work we do in the podcast and in our teaching. So thank you in advance for that. And until I see you next time, stay safe, stay strong, keep practicing, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Take good care.